Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me today on the Class War Battlefield podcast. Please do me the honor of supporting this work that I am doing. I've been doing this work now for free on your behalf for, my God, 11 years. 5, 10, 20, 50. If you can afford it, please do cash at me at dollar sign CWB podcast CWB podcast cash app it CWB podcast also also hit me up on PayPal CWB podcast all the way across the board y'all help me out help me out help me out thank you for donating and enjoy the show Minister William Gladstone, who observed that a government's budget is much more than a matter of arithmetic. In a thousand ways, he wrote, budgets affect the strength and prosperity of kingdoms. So it is with the budget of Ronald Reagan. Its arithmetic has sparked drama and conflict in Washington. But its impact can best be gauged in the thousands of ways it touches the places we live and work. Tonight, contributing reporter Howard Husick begins a special series of reports on one city, Patterson, and the way it's touched by the new philosophy of Ronald Reagan. In the coming months, the Patterson Project will track changes in the city and in the lives of four of its families. Patterson, a small, big city of 139,000 people packed into eight square miles. It's a city set off by itself, buffered from surrounding New Jersey by highways and hills and the Passaic River, 
around whose great falls Patterson grew up. It is and always has been an immigrant city, a mixture of mills and cultures. The poet William Carlos Williams, a physician here, saw the city as a crucible for America's masses, a place of plaster saints and glass jewels, he called it. There is in seven and a half or eight square miles here, some of 1800, some of 1700, some of 1900, and very much some of 1980s reality. You know, they wrote a book called Gritty Cities, and they put Patterson on that list right up at the top. There is a grit here. It can only come from having lived through the tough times. In the great dramas of American economic history, Patterson has always played leading parts. It's the birthplace of industrial capitalism in America, founded by Alexander Hamilton himself, who saw the potential in the Passaic. Water power fueled the mills that made Patterson synonymous with silk, revolvers, locomotives. Later it became one of the first proving grounds for organized labor, as the bitter silk strike of 1913 unsuccessfully sought unionization. And as the Northeast declined, so did Patterson, losing population and jobs, 9,000 jobs during the 70s. Unemployment hit 17 percent. Mill housing became black and Hispanic ghettos. But Patterson today is no basket case. It retains solid residential neighborhoods, both blue-collar and middle class. The 1980 census showed it losing less population than any of New Jersey's major cities. Businesses, drawn by a ready labor force and an aggressive mayor's office, are moving in. Unemployment has dropped to 12 percent. Patterson today is very much a city dangling between decline and rebirth. And so the question, how will the Reagan revolution and its brand of economics change the fortunes of Patterson? The early reviews are mixed. Mayor Pat Kramer is a Republican. Let us be fair. The one thing we know about that old giveaway concept, it didn't work. You know, one thing the United States has done is spend millions, billions to prove what won't work. I think it's worth an effort to try some of these other ideas. Generally, business are concerned. I think he started out very nicely. And I was supporting him, and I am supporting him. A single problem I do have is my high interest rate. This is my single problem at the present time. What do people say just over the counter when they hear the name Ronald Reagan? What do people talk about? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, there's not a great deal of love about him, that's for sure. Patterson shares some concerns with many cities. Will federal budget cuts force a jump in local property taxes to maintain city services? The city has developed a strong dependency on federal dollars in every vital department from public works to uh, the police department, fire department, and all of that. Other issues have a distinctly local character. Will the city's 18-acre historic section, the old mill district rebuilt in part with federal aid, now attract private investment? Ultimately, though, economic policies have personal impacts. And over the coming months, the Patterson Project will follow a cross-section of Pattersonians to track the effects of Reaganomics. Philip Pope, owner of Pope Chemical, and a beneficiary of personal and business tax cuts. I think that reduced government spending and increased investment in private business is a very important thing. Pope hopes to back his views with deeds and will build a new industrial park on this site. His hope? That a recovering economy will bring tenants and jobs to what he'll call Opportunity Park. Tony and Teresa Petrazzo, homeowners and parents in the blue-collar People's Park section. We, uh, we barely making uh, ends meet. 
The big question for the Petrazzos, can Teresa, laid off at a local shirt factory, find work to supplement her husband's income? Will the Petrazzos continue to trust the financially strapped Patterson Public Schools with the education of their children? Ray and Ursula Heath, community activists in the middle class east side, where mansions reflect the wealth once generated by the city's mills. I do have to give up a little bit of something in order for my life to be better further down the road. Can the Heaths, with two kids in college, absorb a loss of student loans? Will independent voters like these continue to support Ronald Reagan? Finally, Velma Armstrong, the single mother of three in Patterson's fourth ward ghetto. The Reagan budget has already changed her personal budget. Medicaid, it was there. You know, like any time my children get sick or anything, I can always take them to the doctor. But now, I don't know. I could take them, but not saying that the doctor's going to treat them. Will Velma continue working, or will she opt for the security and better income of public welfare? Tomorrow on part two of the Patterson Project, we'll take a closer look at the world of Velma Armstrong. In Patterson, I'm Howard Husick. Ronald Reagan was President of the United States from 1980 to 1989 and in this tutorial we're going to look at both his domestic policy, his policy at home, but also his foreign policy. So his attitudes uh, particularly towards the Soviet Union and, and towards Russia. Starting off with his domestic policy, his biggest um, and most, most significant policy was, was nicknamed Reaganomics. Reaganomics was a combination of cutting taxes and cutting benefits. And by cutting the taxes, particularly for the richer people in society, or certainly business people, uh, business taxes and personal taxes, those businesses will then invest. So it's promoting investment from business. That was really the aim. And when that investment comes, there will be a trickle-down effect. So those businesses investing will create more jobs. Um, they will raise wages within their companies. Businesses will expand and therefore the people at the bottom of the spectrum, either the poor people or the people without jobs, will automatically benefit from that. And because of that benefit, because of that trickle-down effect benefit, uh, it actually meant that he could also cut benefits, um, which was controversial because one of his biggest benefit cuts was actually for single mothers. But ultimately, this was an economic plan that he thought was going to work. Um, the question is, did it work? Well, first of all, um, during uh, Reagan's presidency, unemployment did drop. Uh, it did drop. But if you actually look at it over the course of his entire presidency in 1980, when he became president, it was around about 6%. In 1989, it was around about 5%. But what you also need to consider there is the fact there was an economic recession in between in the mid-1980s. So he had a recession to deal with at the same time. So it wasn't just, you know, that, that things globally were good for him. So to actually manage to reduce unemployment as much as he did in this second term from 1984 to 89 or 85 to 89 in his second term is actually a, a big achievement. However, by cutting the taxes, 
it also means that you reduce the amount of money the government's getting in. Um, now, that means that the government technically should spend less, which was Reagan's big idea. If the government spends more, then you're in a bit of a mess. And what that's going to actually create is a deficit. So a gap between what you're bringing in and what you're paying out is going to produce debt. And that means you're going to have to lend. You're going to have to lend off other countries. And in fact, when Reagan left office in 1989, the USA had the biggest budget deficit in the world. So he had overspent. And that budget deficit would continue to grow under the uh, Bush administration. It was actually Clinton in the mid-90s, in 1997, 1998, who actually managed to balance the budget because Reagan had overspent. And so, so I mean, if you, if you were to balance the success and failure of Reaganomics, um, it, yes, he reduced unemployment and, and, and yes, he created jobs. And so in that respect, you would see it as a success. Um, and the tax cut was incredibly popular with people, you have to remember. Um, but in fact, halfway through his presidency, he did have to increase taxes again. So there was a massive initial reduction when he became president. But gradually, he did have to actually increase it. And he was responsible for one of the biggest tax increases in presidential history as well um, as reducing it by the biggest amount. So it's it swings around about a little bit there. Um, why? was this deficit when he's cutting benefits as well. A lot of it centred around actually his foreign policy and his foreign policy spending. And his big project from 1983 onwards was the Strategic Defence Initiative or the SDI. And this was nicknamed in the press the Star Wars Project. The Star Wars Project, which would cost 24 billion US dollars, from 1983 onwards, was in effect an idea of putting satellites into space to stop uh, Russian missiles getting through to America. So they would intercept the missiles and blow them up in air, in midair, and it would all be uh, it would all be done by satellites in space. This was using technology that that didn't exist at that time. It was probably technology that was 10, 15, 20 years um, before its making. And Reagan poured lots and lots of money into this. And some people see Star Wars actually as ending the Cold War because the Russians realized they couldn't compete with Star Wars. So what that meant was the Russians thought, well, we're having an arms race here with America. We're in the middle of the Cold War. But actually, we're realizing we can't compete with that kind of financial muscle. The amount of money the Americans are putting into this and whether it's successful or not, we, we, we can't do it. We can't compete on that level. So what that meant was the Russians actually went to the negotiating table with Reagan. Gorbachev, the Russian leader, um, went to the, uh, the, the, the uh, arms limitation conferences. And the, the beginning of the end of the Cold War was actually enacted. And some people really do credit the Star Wars program. Much that some people say it was a complete waste of money. When you've got to remember, America was in the middle of a recession in the mid 1980s. So, uh, you know, 1984, massive unemployment. But ultimately, um, yeah, you know, others see it as, as something that actually benefited in the long term because it ended the Cold War. Ultimately, Reagan, who was known as the great communicator, he was an ex Hollywood actor. Um, he'd starred in, in films um, alongside the likes of James Dean. 
He was known as the great communicator, fantastic public speaker uh, who survived an assassination attempt, had a fantastic charisma about him. And these two policies in different ways actually endeared the American people to him rather than against him. And he is actually in the top 10 most popular American presidents consistently when it comes to polling. Um, he was conservative. He, some see him as slightly right wing. But nevertheless, his policies, his approach, the way he went about things has made him uh, popular amongst, uh, particularly amongst conservatives in America. Despite his faith in his economic recovery plan, Ronald Reagan has warned Americans not to expect overnight change. But for some Americans, the abrupt shifts called Reaganomics have already meant immediate and personal change. Among those most affected are the so-called working poor, those just a step above the welfare rolls. In his continuing series, The Patterson Project, contributing reporter Howard Husick is tracking the effects of Reaganomics through the eyes of four families of varying backgrounds. Tonight, he profiles one of those families, members of the working poor. This is our bed, and all four of us sleep on the bed. This is the bedtime ritual for 25-year-old Velma Armstrong and her three children. It's not the average bedtime story. There's only one bed for four to share. And before eight, and again before breakfast, the bed doubles as the living room couch in the apartment the Armstrongs share with Velma's mother and two brothers. It's really overcrowded. I mean, like... I have two brothers here, plus my three children. It's only a four-room apartment with two bedrooms. I'm like, this is our bedroom, really, because my brother, they're in one, and my mother is in the other. Before October, the Armstrongs had their own apartment. Velma, the full-time secretary of a large Patterson daycare center, paid the $280 rent with the help of $123 a month from the Aid for Families with Dependent Children welfare program. Another $85 in food stamps helped supplement her own income, $144 a week. With welfare came Medicaid, payment in full for nearly all her medical expenses. The aid, all of it, stopped abruptly October the 1st. Changes in welfare eligibility rules aimed at saving $11 billion nationally over the next five years affected a 1,000 families in the Patterson area, including Velma Armstrong's. At first, I tried to maintain the household. You know, I stayed there for about... About three weeks, and the first was getting close. The first of the month, that's when the rent is still. Okay, I stayed there, and I tried. But, you know, I saw that I, there was no way that I could make it, so I decided to move back into my mother's. Her mother's house is a leaky shingle structure in Patterson's fourth ward ghetto. The furniture that wouldn't fit here has been replaced with makeshift substitutes. Bath and breakfast come in shifts, and it's a half-hour walk to work with the younger kids in tow, bound for school or daycare. But beyond inconvenience, the changes in Velma's life have brought fear. Fear centered specifically on her loss of health insurance. You never know what might happen, you know. Like we could go up plus she wanted to get hit by a car or whatever, you know. And I don't have anything there. What? What would you do? I would take him to a doctor or to a hospital, whatever I would have to do and just pray that they would treat them. And if there's fear here, there's also temptation. Velma Armstrong knows only too well that there's a simple way for her to regain Medicaid, food stamps, her own apartment, and to take home nearly the money she does from working. Right now, could you do better on welfare than you are working? Yes, I could. 
At the Passaic County Welfare Office, 100 of those 1,000 purged from the welfare rolls October the 1st have indeed quit work, regaining their benefits and cutting into projected budget savings. In a final analysis, there may be some small savings. But I don't think that that savings will hold as we progress year by year. The cuts are really affecting the people who are working, not the people who are not working. So we in turn will be raising up another group of welfare recipients because their children have seen that no longer does it pay to work. You're better off on welfare and letting uncle take care of business. Indeed, more than any other group, those poor who work have felt the sting of budget cuts. In addition to the cuts she's encountered, someone like Velma Armstrong could face increased rent for subsidized housing units, reductions in nutritional aid for young mothers and their children, increased fees at daycare centers. This preponderance of budget cuts affecting the working poor prompted in part budget director David Stockman's now famous public doubts about the program he helped author. There's a guiding philosophy behind it, though. Ronald Reagan believes that only the destitute, he calls them the truly needy, merit government support. Others, he feels, will continue to work out of self-respect and, he hopes, optimism for the future. There's some evidence things are working out that way for Velma Armstrong. Hardships aside, she's continuing to work. She's found a community health center to take care of non-emergency medical needs, at least, with fees based on income. County officials, armed with increased discretion over federal funds, seem likely to cut daycare centers less than some other programs. And Velma, too, is enjoying some new measure of independence. I feel glad, but if I had a job that was paying more and one with benefits, I would feel much, much happier. In the months to come, we'll return to Velma Armstrong on the Patterson Project. But next, we move to the other end of the economic spectrum, to an industrialist who's taking Ronald Reagan and his word and trying to create new jobs. Next on the Patterson Project, the world of Philip Pope. In Patterson, I'm Howard Husick. And our Closer Look series, The Patterson Project, will resume next month. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. With interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980, Nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes, more than at any time in the past four years. This afternoon, 6,500 young men and women will be married. And with inflation at less than half of what it was just four years ago, they can look forward with confidence to the future. It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? Ghostbusters is the story of three men who cast off the shackles of academia to start their own business, one in which they capture ghosts to the benefit of both the public safety and their own wallets. Business is good, so good that they hire another Ghostbuster, become local celebrities, and gain the experience necessary to defeat Gozer, a being hell-bent on destroying the city or the world for reasons. But that's not all that important. 
What is important is when Ghostbusters takes place, right in the middle of the Reagan administration in the 1980s. The Ghostbusters are not only depicted as heroes, but Reaganites, conservative businessmen who scoff at the federal government and desire riches beyond their wildest dreams. In 2009, flagship conservative journal National Review named Ghostbusters among the best conservative movies ever made. But why? What is it about the narrative of Ghostbusters that appeals to conservatives? There are two things that make Ghostbusters feel good. One, bustin'. And two, the economic policies of tax cuts, deregulation, and privatization espoused by President Ronald Reagan, commonly and pejoratively known as Reaganomics. When President Ronald Reagan made his inaugural speech, he famously told the American people that government is not the solution to our problem. Government is our problem. His plan was to cut taxes for the wealthiest Americans, a strategy called supply side by its admirers and trickle down by its critics. In addition, he pushed deregulation, a process in which the rules are loosened up for giant corporations to allow them to make more money off the backs of their workers. This focus on giving everything to the private sector and cutting only government services is commonly and sometimes derisively called Reaganomics. The notion is that when the rich get richer, job growth will skyrocket, wages will increase, and everyone will get something out of it, including the federal debt. So what of the debt? Well, Reagan's tax cuts brought an incredible ballooning of the federal debt. When he took office in January of 1981, the debt was a sizable $934 billion, but that is nothing compared to what it became during Reagan's presidency. When he left the Oval Office in January 1989, the debt was a staggering $2.7 trillion. So we went from less than a trillion dollars in the hole to almost $3 trillion in the hole. Reagan's Republican successor, George H.W. Bush, brought the debt to $4.2 trillion. Reaganomics continued into the George W. Bush administration. Tax cuts for the rich and deregulation, all with the promise that it would help the worker through the trickle-down theory. However, during the decade of George W. Bush's presidency, the United States experienced zero job growth. And zero is actually worse than it sounds since none of the preceding six decades registered job growth of less than 20%. Compare that to the 1970s, which are often bemoaned as a time of economic stagflation and political malaise, partly due to the Carter administration. Yet, the 1970s registered a 27% increase in jobs. Partly because of that relatively slow rise in jobs, which was down from 31% in the 1960s, American voters turned to Ronald Reagan and his unfounded economic theories of tax cuts and deregulation. So, did it work? No, it actually made job growth worse. It went from an adequate but unimpressive 27% growth in the 1970s to a significantly lower 20% in the 80s. All under Reagan's watch. Put simply, Reaganomics didn't work. As George H.W. Bush himself once commented when he was running against Reagan in the 1980 primaries, it is voodoo economics. So why did he adopt it after he took control of the White House in 1989? Because it is popular among wealthy donors, and if it got Reagan two terms, maybe it would at least give Bush one. His son, George W. Bush, also went all-in on Reaganomics due to its popularity among wealthy campaign donors. The rich control the will of the president. 
Because of Reagan's sweeping tax cuts favoring the rich, right-wing billionaires like the Koch brothers and others had much more money to reinvest in the political process, giving to Republican candidates who will keep their taxes low, regulations non-existent, unions weakened, and their workers poor enough to keep working for them due to a lack of a better option. The private sector is given all the attention and benefits, while public services, many of which are life and death for some Americans, get cut. Deregulation made the rich richer, but it also damaged American access to health care, creating an exceptional rise in costs for the average American. Deregulation in energy services caused untold damage to our environment. One of Reagan's strategies to reduce government spending was privatization of what were previously government functions, meaning using private contractors to do work that government agencies had formerly done. Of course, private standards are different from government standards. The government has a lot of oversight. Also, this was following deregulation of those private standards by Reagan himself. Privatization outsources a problem to a company that has limited control over the root cause of the problem. Now, not all privatization has been unhelpful, that should be clear, but it often breeds corruption, greed, fraud, and it allows the government to blame someone else should the corporation fail. No liability. Privatization of previously government-run institutions continues to this day, notably in the prison system. All of Reagan's economic policies, meaning tax cuts for the rich, cuts to public services like welfare, privatization, and deregulation caused far more harm than good. Americans suffered then, and due to his unearned legacy as one of America's better presidents, somehow, Republican politicians since Reagan have been able to adopt these policies in his name. So, how does all this relate to Ghostbusters? Peter Venkman, Ray Stantz, Egon Spengler, and Winston Zedmore are portrayed as Reagan-era conservative heroes. Everything that Reaganomics proposes as a positive is portrayed as a positive in the film. Ivan Reitman, director of the film, once said, I've always been something of a conservative slash libertarian. The first movie deals with going into business for yourself, and it's anti-EPA, too much government regulation, it does have a very interesting point of view that really resonates. So, before anyone says I'm reading too much into this, the director himself has confirmed it. As for writer Dan Aykroyd's beliefs, well, they're all over the map. I don't think we will ever have a formal relationship, a formal contact, with any alien species out there, especially after 9-11. However, I'm not too interested in examining the authors. I'm mostly interested in examining the text. Films are products of their time, and even if no explicit political message is intentional, politics are inherent in the art regardless. For example, you can generally tell a lot about America's relationships with other countries based on how a Hollywood action movie showcases them. During the Cold War, Russians were the default bad guys, even if the filmmaker had no agenda against them. Whether or not Ghostbusters is explicitly propaganda for Reagan-era ethics or not, it's definitely informed by Reagan-era ethics. There's a difference. In the beginning of the film, Venkman, Stans, and Spengler are fired from their position at Columbia University. 
Among conservatives, academia is considered one of the pillars of the liberal establishment. Republican politicians see beating up on universities as a way to prove their conservative bona fides, and this derision of academia spreads to Republican voters as well. In a Gallup survey from last year, two-thirds of Republicans said that they have just some or very little confidence in colleges. The chief complaint is that schools are too liberal. In Ghostbusters, the trio being fired by the snooty Dean reinforces this idea and paints the Ghostbusters as free thinkers rebelling against the academic establishment that conservatives believe is brainwashing their children with facts. After their dismissal, Venkman suggests they start a business. Stans remarks that Venkman doesn't understand the private sector because it, unlike academia or the government, actually expects results. Another slam on the systems of the public sector. They scoff at safety regulations and build unlicensed nuclear accelerators. Their private enterprise, of course, is almost immediately successful, unlike their failed academic careers. Without the shackles of, you know, common sense, the Ghostbusters are able to break free like good Reaganites and make a fortune. The government was the problem all along. Instead of revealing to the world that there's an afterlife and that they have developed incredible world-shattering technology that can track and capture ghosts, they decide to make a quick buck. The Ghostbusters are broke after their dismissal, but they are able to get a loan from the bank thanks to the sacrifice of Ray Stance. Shaky lending from banks that were deregulated under Reagan sent American household debt levels soaring after he took office. Now, Reagan apologists say that the economic growth in the 80s was good, but this was fueled in part by a burst of consumer debt and bad banking practices, which eventually resulted in the savings and loan collapse. The real antagonist of Ghostbusters is not Zool or Gozer, People remember Gozer fondly. The most despicable villain is Walter Peck, a bureaucrat from the Environmental Protection Agency. The nemesis of the Ghostbusters is the federal government, personified by this pencil neck. Ghostbusters believes in Reagan's statement that government is not the solution but the problem. Completely ignorant of what it takes to run a small business, Peck cuts the power supply to the containment unit and unleashes hell on Earth. The politics of this scene are blatantly obvious, and of course, it's the private sector that saves the day. To a conservative, especially one who deifies Ronald Reagan, this is what always happens when a government regulator interferes in the free market. They say, why can't the federal government just leave businesses alone? So what if the Ghostbusters are carrying nuclear weapons on their backs? So what if they're firing these weapons all over the city? To a Reagan-era conservative, the Ghostbusters are the fulfillment of deregulation, a utopian standard for what deregulation would create. Men who just get the job done. Except Ghostbusters is fiction. In reality, a lack of safety regulations would not result in rescuing the city from the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. It would probably result in a nuclear explosion from a proton pack. If there is one thing Reagan-era conservatives hated, it was taxes. It should be no surprise that the most mockable character in the film is Louis Tully, an accountant who is obsessed with the tax code. For the crime of being, I don't know, adjacent to taxes, he is mauled and transformed into a demon dog. This movie is weirder than I remembered. After the ghosts are released from the containment unit, the Ghostbusters meet with the mayor of New York. 
Unable to handle the job himself because he's the government and the government is bad, he turns to the Ghostbusters' private enterprise. He privatizes the security of New York. The only government institutions that conservatives routinely trust and wholeheartedly support are the military and the police. These institutions are protected from the film's anti-government politics in two ways. First, when Walter Peck wants the Ghostbusters containment unit shut down, he overreaches and says that the police officer who accompanies him can shoot Venkman. The police officer warns Peck not to tell him to do his job, separating the police from the film's anti-government politics. When the Ghostbusters make a deal with the mayor, they enlist the help of the military to take back the city. They too are protected from the film's anti-government politics. I could go on and on, but in hopes of not belaboring the point, I will wrap up. People generally lavish Ghostbusters with praise, even if they disagree with its politics. I like this movie, mostly. However, it should be noted that comedy, to be funny, usually requires the skewering of the powerful. There is nothing rebellious about conservative politics. It's obsessed with maintaining the status quo of the rich getting richer and economic disparity, situations that were worsened under Reagan. The long-term ramifications of the Reagan administration are still being felt today, and you don't have to feel as I do. But for me, it makes watching Ghostbusters in 2018 a lot less fun than it was when I watched it in the 80s. And that's not because it didn't age well, like most comedies. It's because its messaging was actually there the whole time. I was just too young to notice it. But you know what? That's okay. Lamenting that you can't see something from your childhood the same way as an adult is not a tragedy. Embrace being a grown-up. This is not a loss. This is just growth. More than any other president of recent times, Ronald Reagan would agree with that famous Calvin Coolidge observation that the business of America is business. As candidate and president, Reagan has made clear his belief that with government off our backs, private business would put America back on its feet. Our contributing reporter, Howard Husick, is tracking the effects of the Reagan economic plan using the city of Patterson as his laboratory. The Patterson Project is following the Reagan impact through the eyes of four families ranging from rich to poor. Well, tonight we look at someone Ronald Reagan is counting on, one of Patterson's business leaders. For Philip T. Pope, president of Pope Chemical, Princeton alumnus, and Patterson Boys Club Man of the Year, voting for Ronald Reagan was an act of conscience. I think that reduced government spending and increased investment in private business is a very important thing. If Phil Pope likes Reaganomics, the president would surely like Phil Pope. Here is a classic small city businessman active in church and charity. He began this printing ink supply business in what had been an abandoned building. From a handful of employees 17 years ago, he now employs almost 90 people, toward whom he projects a fatherly feeling. One of the things that pleases me most about our uh, employees in Patterson is the number of them that have become homeowners in the last five years. I think this is the thing that's going to bring Patterson back. The old uh, sweat equity idea of uh, putting your own efforts into fixing up your house every weekend and you're proud of it and you worry about your neighbors and you worry about keeping the neighborhood up. In a sense, Ronald Reagan has made a deal with the Phil Popes of America. In exchange for tax cuts, both business and personal, it's hoped they'll expand their businesses, give more to charity, and try to fill the void left by cuts in government social programs. Phil Pope likes to think he's doing his part. 
The firm is just beginning a $2 million expansion renovation. Does the Reagan economic plan make any difference to Pope Chemical directly? I think so. We are able now to uh, depreciate our equipment faster, which gives us more dollars every year to expand with. What's more, as Ronald Reagan would have it, Pope's interests have branched beyond his own firm. He's quadrupled the company's charitable contributions, for starters, and once a week he visits Patterson's only big downtown office building to don his new hat as president of the city's private industry council. This consortium of local businessmen gets federal funds to train the unemployed and underemployed in skills known to be in short supply. Because of that link with private business, training programs like these are among the only see-the-job programs not to get the Reagan budget acts. Training programs uh, can be well run by private businessmen who know the needs of the marketplace. I'm excited to see a small group of people these uh, 18 students in this program that are turned on by the chance that they can get in a trade that pays good wages. The members of this class are being trained to work in Patterson's many small machine shops where jobs have been going begging. Of 18 who graduated earlier this year, 16 did indeed get jobs. It's an opportunity to help better yourself, you know, in life, you know, like once you get out of here and get a job placement somewhere, you can still keep growing, you know. Possible that Phil Pope will even put some of these trainees to work indirectly. In yet a third role, he hopes to become the developer of industrial real estate. He's negotiating to buy this abandoned Patterson Gas Works and turn it into a 10 acre industrial park. He hopes to begin work within the month on what he'll call Opportunity Park. Opportunity is a great name for people helping other people and for growth uh, and for new new development in an area that uh, used to be called a dying area. Pope hopes that ultimately five to seven hundred people will work in the five new buildings he'll erect here. It all sounds perfect. New jobs, job training, Reaganomics at work. But Pope does admit to some doubts. I don't see uh, private philanthropy and private giving, whether it's personal or industrial, uh, coming anywhere near filling the whole gap caused by federal cutbacks. And he concedes that his firm's expansion plans were in the works before the Reagan economic recovery plan. Tax breaks were nice, he says, but not crucial. The machine shop training program seems to have made a good start, but it and other remaining job training programs are far smaller than the phased out CETA public service jobs program, which once employed 1,100 Patterson residents. Pope would like to expand this program, but new federal budget cuts could make that difficult. Even Opportunity Park might be easier to build had federal aid programs for such projects not been cut back. Pope says he'll manage anyway, and government intervention should be reduced. But other Patterson business leaders are concerned. We see it as, as being a real scary time, if you will, uh, with all the changes that are taking place and the threat of losing some of the programs that have been so helpful to us, plus the economy being so shaky at this point, and particularly in the urban areas, uh, it's going to be a very difficult time. And if we lose a lot of the government programs that we've had, not handouts, but help and assistance, if they are lost, we're going to have a very difficult time keeping our heads above water and keeping people like you see behind us employed. Stone notes that many Patterson businesses, like this meatpacking plant, started with federal loans or aid and might not exist otherwise. 
He fears the city may now be unable to attract such businesses to replace older firms that continue to close. But Phil Pope, still a believer, preaches patience. He hopes that the city could be part of the proposed Reagan Enterprise Zone concept, in which tax breaks could replace lost business subsidies. And he's sure by spring, the magic of supply-side economics will begin to work. And so you would say, just wait, things will get better. Tighten your belt, and they, they are going to get better. We'll follow Phil Pope and all his projects, but next on the Patterson Project, a look at two families, neither poor nor rich, Americans in the middle, for whom the effects of Reaganomics are more difficult to pinpoint. In Patterson, I'm Howard Husick. He grew up in small towns in Illinois. After finishing high school, he landed a scholarship from Eureka College in Eureka, Illinois. Upon graduation, Ron took a job as a sports announcer with radio station WOC in Davenport, Iowa. He soon moved to WHO in Des Moines, where he became the voice of the Chicago Cubs and the White Sox. With a deep love for acting and a bit of good luck, he earned a contract with Warner Brothers Studios. He became a star. A star who appealed to audiences because he was so clearly one of them. He was also a peacetime volunteer army officer. With the outbreak of World War II, Ron Reagan signed on for active duty and was transferred to a special Air Force training film unit. Four years later, Air Force Captain Reagan returned to Warner Brothers under the most challenging period of his life. A dedicated union man, he was six times elected president of the Screen Actors Guild of the AFL-CIO, helping to bring equity in salaries and working conditions for actors, technicians, extras, cameramen, almost everyone in the industry. During trying times, Ron Reagan single-handedly took on the job of keeping union members in control of their union. His crusade to preserve the freedom of America's working men and women kindled in Mr. Reagan a deep interest in government. In 1966, he was elected governor of the state of California. Next to president, the biggest job in the nation. What he inherited was a state of crisis. California was faced with a $194 million deficit and was spending a million dollars a day more than it was taking in. The state was on the brink of bankruptcy. Working with teams of volunteers from all sectors, Governor Reagan got things back on track. His common sense style and strong creative leadership won him a second term in 1970. Governor Reagan was the greatest tax reformer in the state's history. His program included property tax relief reduction of sales taxes, and tax rebates totaling nearly $3 billion. The San Francisco Chronicle said, We exaggerate very little when we say that Governor Reagan has saved the state from bankruptcy. When Governor Reagan left office, the $194 million deficit had been transformed into a $554 million surplus. And while saving the taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars, he improved the quality of life for the people of California. A California labor union president summed up his accomplishments with these words. Governor Reagan has signed AFL-CIO-backed bills for injured and unemployed workers for more than $266 million. No governor, Republican or Democrat, has ever done anything like that. This is a man whose time has come. A man whose accomplishments make him the natural choice for President of the United States. The time is now to limit federal spending, to insist on a stable monetary reform, and to free ourselves from imported oil. 
The time is now to resolve that the basis of a firm and principled foreign policy is one that takes the world as it is and seeks to change it by leadership and example, not by harangue, harassment, or wishful thinking. The time is now to say that we shall seek new friendships and expand others and improve others, but we shall not do so by breaking our word or casting aside old friends and allies. The time is now, my fellow Americans, to recapture our destiny, to take it into our own hands. I ask you tonight all over this land to volunteer your help in this cause so that we can carry our message throughout the land. The time is now. The time is now for Reagan. Reagan for president. Welcome to The Real News Network. I'm Paul Jay in Washington. February 6th will be the 100th anniversary of the birth of Ronald Reagan. It will be celebrated by meetings and symposiums all over the world. Now joining us to give his take on Reaganomics is Michael Hudson. Michael's a former Wall Street economist, a distinguished research professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and he runs a website, michael-hudson.com. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thank you very much. We are celebrating the successes and achievements of Ronald Reagan, and particularly economics. Uh, what do you make of Reaganomics? Well, obviously, the uh, consequence was to quadruple uh, the federal debt uh, by cutting taxes. Most people think of him uh, in terms of lowering income taxes, especially on the higher brackets. But one of the key things that people don't recognize is uh, what he did with the small print of the tax code, especially uh, in the 1981 uh, tax revision as it affected real estate. He uh, gave real estate double declining balance so that you could depreciate a building as if the building was wearing out, even as the property were gaining price, doubling quadrupling, uh, as if it were wearing out and avoid paying any income tax at all. Not only did our real estate owners, uh, absentee owners that is, avoid paying income tax, but they had a tax loss carry forward. While their building was soaring in price, while their rents were rising, while they were making more and more money, the tax code enabled them to pretend that the building was wearing out in just seven and a half years. And this was at a time when uh, the most expensive buildings were pre-war buildings, even hundred-year-old buildings, when buildings were built better. Uh, and so what Reagan did was make the fire sector, finance, insurance, and real estate virtually tax-exempt. So it wasn't that he lowered uh, income taxes. He abolished them. He, he uh, replaced the regulatory uh, commissions with deregulators, especially the group that was called the crazies out of uh, Utah, who were uh, put in charge of the Environmental Protection Agency and other environment agencies. But the, the supporters of Reagan say, they, they may even agree with much of what you just said, they said, well, this allowed growth in the economy. It gave rise to prosperity, regulations out of the way, lowering, even elimination of taxes. I mean, a lot of his supporters would applaud all of that and say it was a positive for the economy as a whole. When people talk about the economy, what do they mean? When uh, Reagan took office in 1979, the wealthiest 1% of Americans got 29% 
of the revenue accruing to wealth, interest, dividends, uh, rent, and capital gains. Uh, by 2004, they doubled that proportion to 59% of the returns to wealth. So the economic growth uh, did not accrue to labor. Labor's living standards and uh, real wages have not increased since 1979. During all of Reagan and uh, Bush and Clinton, their living standards didn't go up. So the economic growth was all in the overhead to the financial sector. It was all rentier growth. Okay, but the, the theory is it's supposed to trickle down, so didn't it? No, there was, it was sucked up. That's the important thing. Instead of trickling down, there was a huge sucking up of wealth to the top. If it trickled down, the richest 1% wouldn't have doubled their share of the returns to wealth. If it had trickled down, real wages would have gone up. Instead, we have the greatest inequality of any country in the Western world. That's not trickling down. Part of Reaganomics was the uh, relationship to foreign debt and what happened with interest rates. Uh, that was also, while it wasn't very good for Brazil's and other places, uh, it did draw a lot of money back into the U.S. Wasn't that good for the U.S. economy? No, because uh, it would have been good for the economy if the money coming back to the United States would have uh, been invested in real, tangible capital formation. But it wasn't. The money coming into the United States took the form of loans by the upper 10% of the population to the bottom 90%. So the wealth coming back in ended up indebting the bottom 90%. Uh, the bottom 90% had to go into a lifetime of debt peonage in order to afford housing. There was a huge increase in housing prices. The advocates of Reaganomics said, look, he created balance sheet wealth. Look at how everybody got rich off their houses. But when you say someone got rich off the value of their houses, that means new buyers have to pay much, much more of their future income to afford housing. So what they call uh, wealth creation is actually debt creation that impoverished the economy, laying the uh, groundwork for the bubble economy that burst under uh, uh, Bush and Obama. Now, at the end of Reagan's presidency, what was the State of the Union? Uh, what the narrative is, Reagan was one of the great economic presidents of, of our time. Including the uh, other four years of Bush, the Reagan-Bush. The effect was to quadruple America's debt. Reagan crippled the country economically. That was the objective. His backers were predators. Uh, making an economy free for predators is not what the classical economists meant by a free market. Adam Smith uh, talked about uh, businessmen getting together to establish a monopoly over the economy. Uh, Adam Smith would have turned over in his grave to say the Reagan idea of free markets is to open the markets to crooks, to fraudsters, to environmental degradation, to predators, to creditors. So how does Reagan emerge then as one of the, as the, one of the great heroes of modern presidency and particularly of free markets, small government success story? Well, if you were a predator and a wealthy Wall Street investor and you controlled the media, you would want to applaud him too. Remember, this, the people who are applauding Reagan are the people who applaud uh, Michael Khodorkovsky in Russia as a freedom fighter when he was the biggest embezzler in Russia. These are the people who applaud criminals. For them, the criminals are economic success stories not criminals. So if you want to call crime an economic success, then of course you're going to applaud Reagan, rightly so. Sarah Palin, Governor Sarah Palin is going to be speaking at one of the events celebrating Reagan's birth. 
what do you make of the way that the Tea Party adopts Reagan as one, I guess, as one of their ideological uh, gods? I would say that uh, the Tea Party has an agenda that is subsidized by very wealthy people whose objective is to distract uh, the members of the Tea Party from how the economy actually works and to turn their frustration against each other and especially against higher paid labor. I remember once uh, I was driving with Herman Kahn over to uh, visit Governor Rockefeller. Uh, and we were uh, in the car being driven by Rockefeller's uh, chauffeur. And Herman turned to me and said, you know, uh, Governor Rockefeller's chauffeur is not jealous of Governor Rockefeller. He's uh, jealous of the other chauffeurs for the Harrimans and the people who live near the estate who get paid more. Uh, that's the Tea Party uh, strategy. Get labor jealous of uh, public sector labor who might pay more, jealous of people who've been evicted but somehow uh, are able to keep their houses. You uh, turn uh, the fighting within rather than against the people who are actually fighting them. This is Class War 101. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on The Real News Network. For some Americans, the impact of Ronald Reagan's economic program has been clear-cut. For the poor, there have been cuts in social welfare programs. For the wealthy, cuts in taxes. But what about those people in the middle, the majority that put the president in the White House? Contributing reporter Howard Husick is tracking the effects of the Reagan economic plan using the city of Patterson as his laboratory. The Patterson Project is following the Reagan impact through the eyes of four families ranging from rich to poor. Tonight we look at two families in the middle. Meet the Petroza family, average residents of Patterson's aptly named blue-collar neighborhood, People's Park. Tony, a stock clerk at a state transit authority maintenance shop. Teresa, a part-time seamstress at a local shirt factory. They own half their two-family house. For the Petrozas, this Christmas was neither the best nor the worst of times. Both are working, unlike some years past. Still, raising a family of four on $15,000 a year isn't easy. How would Italian-born Teresa describe their Christmas? It's a mitz. This was a happy Christmas for the Heath family, homeowners in the city's middle class east side. Ray, an office equipment salesman, has come back strong after the failure of his own small business last year. His 1981 earnings will approach $25,000, with prospects for 1982 even better. Obviously, it's, it was a, a better year this year than last year was. Both Ray and wife Ursula, a housewife, strong Ronald Reagan supporters. It's difficult to pinpoint direct effects of the so-called Reagan revolution on these two families. Federal income tax rates for both will decline, but not by much. And, like most Americans, they're relatively insulated from cuts in federal social programs. The Petroza children do receive subsidized public school lunches, but cuts in that program have thus far spared families of their income. The Heaths have taken advantage of federal low-interest loans to send their daughters to college, but cuts in that program have thus far spared them as well. Still, that doesn't mean that the Reagan program won't matter to these families. The effects are just more subtle. Consider Patterson's School 16, where Patsy Petroza attends first grade and Carmela the fourth. Children here aren't considered underprivileged. The school gets no direct federal education aid. But this isn't a rich school either. In Patsy's class, most of the 35 students come from foreign-born families. His teacher has the tough task of teaching the children of immigrants how to be Americans. 
Notwithstanding a recent visitor in Patsy's class, the Patterson school system is losing its federal Santa Claus. It's already lost $400,000 of $4 million in federal aid this school year and could lose much more next year. On top of an existing local budget crunch, that, say school officials, means less money for all schools and bigger classes even in school 16. And no matter what anybody tells you, you've got 35 and 36 first graders. You cannot, in the course of a day, give 35 children the attention that you could give 19 and 20. And next year, that could be a bigger problem. The loss of federal aid is more direct out on 21st Avenue, the main street in People's Park. Federal funds once helped pay for walking patrolmen and for CETA workers who cleaned the streets. Tony Petrozza says he'd consider paying a higher local property tax if that meant good schools and safe streets. If it's going to cost me $10 or whatever, whatever the cost is, well, then we'll have to do it. Yeah. Uh, I hate to go down, walking down the street and have somebody hit me over the head and say, well, uh, if you would have paid the $75 more of your taxes, you wouldn't have got yourself a bump in the head. You know. Longtime Patterson Mayor Pat Kramer has indeed asked the city council for a 28% increase in the city's property tax. But school spending in the proposed budget wouldn't make up for federal cuts, and 32 police would be laid off. Local taxes just can't make up for services that had been paid for by Washington. People are going to feel, be realistic. In order to keep what we got, we're going to have to pay. But not all the upward pressure on Patterson's tax rate can be traced to Ronald Reagan. Some of it's left over from Democratic administrations. Federal clean water laws, for instance, have called for the building of a new sewage treatment plant to serve the Passaic River Valley downstream from Patterson in Newark. Federal aid paid to build the plant, but local municipalities must pay to run it. The bill for Patterson's share this year, $6 million, second largest item in the city budget. That's not a bill the city can do much about, but it can cut school expenses. Any attempt to do so, or to increase the school tax to make up for federal cuts, could pit the Petrozas against the Heaths. It would be bad to see something get cut from the education department, yes. It's one thing I think they should leave it alone. If anything, you should add to it. Uh, that would upset me, because I just don't think that I'm getting anywhere near my dollar's worth. Uh, the bulk of the monies that are raised in taxation in the city are used for public schools. The public schools are just not producing a kid who's educated in any way, shape, or form on basics. Some 40% of the $33 million Patterson raises in property taxes goes to its schools. But like many middle-class residents, the Heaths send their son Brennan to Catholic school. Still, the Reagan budget on the whole seems to have brought indirect benefits to the Heaths. New tax incentives for equipment leasing have proved a boon for Ray's line of copying machines. You're talking about a straight 10% off the top, and that's what you are. Uh, you know, you're effectively, you're offering a guy a, a price reduction of 10% before you even start, before you get into any kind of negotiation. There may be indirect benefits for the Petrosas and People's Park as well, and in just the sort of way Ronald Reagan would like. Merchants and the local neighborhood association have organized groups of local teenagers to take up where CETA workers left off, cleaning the streets. They'll start next month. We'll follow the Petrozas and the Heaths on the Patterson Project, along with local business leader Philip Pope. But next, we return to single mother Velma Armstrong to check on her progress since her October 1 welfare benefit cutoff.
and we'll look at what happens to an ambitious public project dependent on federal funds when the climate in Washington changes. In Patterson, I'm Howard Hewson. What makes American capitalism so different from the free markets you'll find elsewhere in the world? Let's take a walk down memory lane. When it comes to this idea that unchecked free market capitalism is the best way to structure an economy and society, and that government intervention of any kind is necessarily inefficient, bad, and expensive, we can trace these ideas back to Ronald Reagan and messaging that emerged in the early 1980s. Sidebar, if you've ever heard the word neoliberalism, this is the ideology it's referring to. Free markets, deregulation, and reduced government spending. So pre-Ronald Reagan, in the World War II and post-World War II era, America had a very different view of titans of industry than we do today. An Elon Musk figure back then, for example, probably would not have been revered the way he is in 21st century American capitalism. We were far more distrustful of the rich back then, perhaps because we had a better understanding of the power dynamic between those with unimaginable wealth and those without it. In the 1930s, FDR denounced leaders of industry who resisted regulation. He called on the imagery of the robber barons, who were like the 19th century, greedy, exploitative, mustached, top hat wearing American businessmen, basically the monopoly man, to remind the American people and the titans of industry themselves that exploiting people for profit is not the American way. This was the era of heavily regulated and heavily taxed capitalism in the decades following World War II. The largest American employer in the 1950s, GM, paid an average of what would be the equivalent of $50 an hour to its workers, which is roughly equal to $100,000 per year salary today. It's no coincidence then that this era saw a very large, very prosperous middle class. Of course, it was not widely accessible to all people, Black people, other communities of color, and women were still considered second-class citizens, though it is worth noting that a lot of social movements, like the civil rights and women's movements, came out of this period of prosperity and stability. But the number of individuals who were able to carve out a stable and financially secure middle-class living and support their families on one working-class income was proportionally much larger than it is today. These are the people who could buy homes with just their job money, to quote one of my favorite bleak tweets. One such reason that historians point to, the top marginal tax bracket, the highest amount of federal income tax you'll pay on every dollar earned over a certain limit during much of that period was 91%. Today, the top marginal tax bracket for people earning more than $523,601 is 37%. Some historians point to the much higher top marginal tax bracket and say that it disincentivized taking an exorbitant salary for oneself because as you earn more incrementally, you get to keep so much less of it. Taxation of this kind was a wealth redistribution strategy. It was taking money from the richest people in society to put it back into the hands, directly or indirectly, but ultimately through government spending, of the regular working class or middle class people you know, 90 to 99% of the rest of the country. At this time in history, the average CEO made approximately 30 times what the average worker made. For context, today that figure is more than 300 times the amount in the S&P. 
As an aside on the topic of taxation changes, part of what's worth noting about our progressive tax system is the way in which it becomes far less progressive as you earn more. For example, if I earn $600,000 of taxable income next year, which 600 grand, that's a lot of money, right? My marginal tax rate will be the same as someone who earns $10 million next year. My effective tax rate, meaning the total amount of my income that I'm going to have to pay in taxes, would be around 38%. Theirs would be 43%, just a few percentage points higher, despite making more than 10 times as much. This matters because tax codes are not naturally occurring phenomena. They are law. They are mutable. They are the result of conscious choices. And right now, they're written to advantage the mega rich far more than just the moderately affluent. Anyway, back to the 1980s. So this cultural ethos and these policies that created a very strong middle class and kept the wealth of the rich in check all began to shift with Ronald Reagan and his advisors, including econ zaddy Milton Friedman. Reagan is the president responsible for reviving Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon's trickle-down economics theory from the 1920s, though I don't believe Reagan himself ever actually called it that. We'll get into some of the key assumptions of trickle-down in a second, but the biggest cultural change was the perception shift about the private and public sectors. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Reagan's administration believed that private industry is inherently efficient because it's driven by incentives of profit maximization, and the public sector is inherently wasteful and inefficient because it's not driven by profit incentives. The nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And it was a real shift in how Americans thought about what types of economic policies netted the best outcomes. We went from criticizing big business for several decades to criticizing big government. And that's basically what knocked down the first domino that got us to where we are today. You triple our troubles and we're better off than any other people on earth. And we've asked so much of government and we've gotten in the habit over the last 40 years of thinking that government has the answers. There's very little that government can do as efficiently and as economically as the people can do themselves. And if government would shut the doors and sneak away for about three weeks, we'd never miss them. President Reagan began deregulating energy, public utilities, banking and finance. He is also widely known for originating the term welfare queen and demonizing recipients of government assistance. And he and his advisors ended a lot of FDR's New Deal programs. This is where we started to see the concept of like lazy Americans who kick back and mooch off the system. This trope was almost exclusively portrayed in media and entertainment as black people and specifically black women based on a mythologized woman named Linda Taylor who committed welfare fraud. So we mentioned deregulation and I think it's worth putting a finer point on this and mentioning a few patently disastrous and notable outcomes of deregulation. Uh, first and foremost, do you remember the 2008 global financial crisis? Because it was indirectly the result of the Commodity Futures Modernization Act in 2000 that deregulated speculative derivatives like credit default swaps, which were 
to put it simply, the gambling device that was used to financialize the American housing market in the early aughts. The 1996 deregulation of the California electricity sector, which then promptly caused the 2000-2001 California electricity crisis, and in three words, Enron and WorldCom. Now, Reagan was and is a polarizing figure. My uh, history class girlies may recall that even George H.W. Bush, before he became Reagan's running mate, called his economic policies voodoo economics because he felt it was, to use the technical term, kind of bullshit. Well, what I said back then, it's, it's very hard to find. the. You know, actually, let me start over. One, I didn't say it. Economists still, to this day, disagree about whether or not Reaganomics was ultimately successful. Fans of Reagan will praise the economic growth that followed his administration where inflation went down and American GDP post-1980s exploded. Ironically, tax revenue under Reagan actually went up because of the growth, despite individual and corporate tax rates being cut. So in some ways, it seemed like it worked. The challenging balance to strike, of course, is that as GDP grew, so did income and wealth inequality, which intimates that the class of beneficiaries of such growth is becoming increasingly smaller. And the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, estimates that worsening wealth inequality has actually slowed our GDP growth in the 21st century. Another complication and misconception is that the U.S.'s economic growth from the 1980s until now outpaced the growth of our peer nations in Europe where incomes are less unequal. But according to World Bank data, that is not the case. While the American economy is richer, the rate of growth has been remarkably similar over time. All that to say, income inequality is not a necessary side effect of economic or even technological growth, which is another popular reason proffered for why the U.S. economy has grown so unequal in the last 40 years. So while people point to policies in the Reagan era that did achieve what they were supposed to, trickle-down specifically has more or less proven ineffective. The wealth did not trickle down to the lowest rungs of society. It proved to have a thicker viscosity and mostly stayed at the top. The other rather paradoxical aspect of the Reagan administration is that despite all of the anti-big government talk, the government gross federal debt actually tripled under Reagan from $900 billion to $2.7 trillion. The myth that he cut spending is so pervasive because the small government messaging was so effective. And like we said, tax revenue did rise and inflation did slow. So that's how I conceptualize the beginning of American capitalism as we know it today. And I think it's crucial to recognize that this version of our economic system is barely 40 years old. Ronald Reagan has complained that the news media has spent too much time focusing on the troubles of an unemployed worker in a mythical place called South Succotash. Our contributing reporter Howard Husick has spent the past nine months following the effects of Reaganomics on a real place, the city of Patterson. The Patterson Project is tracking the fortunes of four families ranging from rich to poor. The news has not been all good by any means, but tonight, a story the president would probably like. A year ago, the Heath family was out of place on their well-kept and well-to-do street on Patterson's east side. They were nearly broke. Their small stationery store in downtown Patterson had banged up, as Ray puts it, gone bankrupt. There was doubt whether they could afford to send daughter Christine to college. 
Last year was not the greatest year for us, and uh, you needed to put your hands on every dollar you could. Your view of the Heath family today may depend on your politics. You could say they're prospering despite the recession. Or you could say they're early beneficiaries of Reaganomics. But there's no doubt they are prospering, thanks to the job Ray got last summer as a salesman of a popular office copying machine. My company just finished the uh, probably the biggest month in its history, at least in the Jersey operation. Uh, we sold a lot of equipment this month. An increase in commissions he was hoping for in December came to pass in a big way. In March, he was named the firm's top salesman for the region, an honor that brought with it a week for two in Acapulco. Like any good salesman, Ray credits the quality of his product for his success and rewards. But he gives partial credit to Ronald Reagan's tax cut plan, specifically to tax credits for equipment leasing. Even if those credits should be cut back now, and they are under fire in Congress, Ray believes they've already done the job Ronald Reagan had in mind. It served its purpose. It got things hopping. And that's what it was supposed to do. Again, it wasn't supposed to be a long-term solution to a problem. It was supposed to create some activity in the private sector. It did. The Reagan budget has other implications for this family, though. Because of it, Ray's success will have a price tag. With his income likely to top $30,000 a year, it's likely, too, that his daughter will no longer qualify for the federal loans and grants that made it possible for her to go to Villanova this year. With college costs more than $8,000 a year, that loss could be substantial. But the Heaths feel confident they could absorb a loss of education aid. As the president would like, he stirred their deep belief in self-reliance. capitalism depends on fair and open competition. Forty years ago, we chose the wrong path, in my view. Following the misguided philosophy of people like Robert Bork, and pull back on enforcing laws to promote competition. We are now 40 years into the experiment of letting giant corporations accumulate more and more power. And where, what have we gotten from? Less growth, weakened investment, Fewer small businesses. Too many Americans who feel left behind. Too many people who are poorer than their parents. I believe the experiment failed. We have to get back to an economy that grows from the bottom up and the middle out. The executive order I'm soon going to be signing commits the federal government to full and aggressive enforcement of antitrust laws. No more tolerance for abusive actions by monopolies. No more bad mergers that lead to mass layoffs, higher prices, fewer options for workers and consumers alike. 
My executive order includes 72 specific actions. I expect the federal agencies, and they know this, <laughs> to help restore competition so that we have lower prices, higher wages, more money, more options, and more convenience for the American people. storm is rising against the privileged minority of the earth. This is why I say it's liberty or it's death. It's freedom for everybody or freedom for nobody. This is an NBC News hotline special report. We're at a turning point in the history of this nation. We need to stand for freedom. There's an escalating authoritarianism and even a creeping fascism. Freedom is precious. If we don't fight for it, you lose it. This much is clear. We must rebel. This is our country. We have always lived in it. We were happy. Then you came. We have to protect ourselves. We have to save our country. We have to fight for what is ours. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am your brother, Brian Reyes. Oh, God, yeah. Welcome to this Class War Battlefield Podcast episode. Man. So, the, the full title... For this episode and I'm hoping to actually be able to include it as the full title is Ronald Reagan's neoconservative neoliberalist neocorporatist Tina T-I-N-A counter-revolution needs to be ended why did I throw all of those words in there. First, I want to start with the idea of calling what happened in 1980 when Reagan was elected. He took office in 81, left in 89. Um, I want to talk about calling it a revolution. Thank you to Gerald Horn for helping me understand the difference between what white folks tend to call a revolution and what a real revolution is. For the people at the top of the society, a revolution for them typically is a, in reality for the rest of the world, a counter-revolution. What's the difference? Simply put, a revolution can be seen, and I'm talking now from a definitional standpoint, as a cosmic reattunement that pushes society forward towards a more humanitarian outcome. The natural state for the human family to exist in is one where humanitarianism feeds every aspect of our lives. It is one where what is often poorly defined um, 
though we call it egalitarian, feeds every aspect in our lives. A revolution pushes humanity further along towards those ends. A counter-revolution aims to disrupt that natural tendency to go forward in order to either maintain a status quo that is anti-human, that is anti-life, that is anti-humanitarian, that is counter-humanitarian, or, in some cases, it pushes the society backwards, further away from those humanitarian and egalitarian um, ends. In that instance, the counter-revolution goes from trying to maintain the status quo as it existed um, at the point where revolution is attempting to push it, to push status quo um, forward for the benefit of all humanity, to deliberately, deliberately taking the society and the globe and a community and a country backwards. That is the idea of counter-revolution. The reason the wealthy see a counter-revolution as a revolution is, pre is pretty easy to see because for them, it benefits them. Especially when the wealthy are anti-human, anti-humanitarian, anti-egalitarian. Um, when they are against the things that make life worth living, they love counter-revolutions because it allows them to do all of their dirt and not suffer any consequences for it. If a society is built on humanitarian principles, on humanitarian precepts, on, on humanitarian constructs, then what happens is the conscious mind in those with money has to be sparked. They can't just go out and do whatever they want to do for money. They have to consider the long-term um, consequences, negative consequences. I've said this before, I'll say it again right here. The word consequence isn't deliberately negative. We interpret it as negative because oftentimes when we use it, it is in a negative form. Well... Sometimes you can see positive consequences for things that you have done. Well, for a lot of wealthy people, the only positive consequence that they ever calculate for is profit, is money, is extraction, is exploitation. Well, those aren't positives. Those are only positives to somebody who is anti-humanitarian. The real positive outcomes are those which allows the soul to grow, which allows the soul to exist in a natural state. Right now, presently, the United States is experiencing a, a horrible, horrible um, epidemic when it comes to depression and despair and all these other things that, that come from a sickness in the soul. Because this society, this system, is, 
is depressing the soul. It is inflicting the soul with with horrible constrictions that the soul has no recourse but to be depressed, but to try to escape from that pressure, um, that that unnatural state. For the wealthy, they don't see this. And mainly they don't see it because a lot of them are in bubbles. But also because the reality is they're in institutions that are psychopathically driven. And because those institutions are psychopathically driven, there is no possibility to calculate anything that takes the humanitarianism of a situation into account. Now, some try to, but capitalism and the institutions that that feed off of capitalism, that promote capitalism, it's not, they don't promote humanitarianism. Which is why we are finding it more and more difficult to align ourselves on, as, a, as a collective with capitalism because it's too much against the natural order of the soul of the being. It hurts too much to continue in this way. And this is why the wealthy are having a problem with adjusting to the reality that is being called on by the masses of people who are saying we can't exist this way anymore because they are living in institutions that think in terms of psychopathy. They don't acknowledge humanitarianism. They don't calculate humanitarianism. Now, I know I said part of this earlier, but I need you to understand this. This is why revolutions to them are problematic. Because revolutions, and they don't always have to be violent, recognize, you know, one of the, one of the most brilliant clips that I ever found was what, M, what Malcolm X said. Mr. Oh, he's always thinking about violence. The beginning of my show, I had that clip in there. The United States is the only society, the only country that has the opportunity to be involved in a bloodless revolution. But the wealthy don't see it that way because, again, if you are, and, I, and look, I want to be careful here because I don't want to dehumanize because that ain't really what I'm aiming for. But I do want to speak a little bit of truth here. When I was 17, I was afflicted. Um, I caught scabies from, from a family friend. And, you know, anybody who's ever dealt with them, they're difficult to get rid of. But it gave me an understanding about... And it was years later when I had this understanding. Back then it was just, oh my God, these things are bothered. What's wrong with them, you know? But it gave, having them and thinking on, you know, trying to get rid of them, it gave me an understanding of something that requires the lifeblood of something else to live is going to do everything that it can do 
to stop that thing from naturally getting rid of it. And that's kind of what we're facing right now with capitalism. Capitalism is a system, and a lot of capitalists are people who depend on sucking the lifeblood, the energy, the elixir, out of communities and families. And now the world is saying, well, wait, we can't keep doing that because it's killing us. It's not only killing us, but it's killing the environment. And they're having a problem with it because that's all they know. That's all they know. So they are seeing the burgeoning because I'm telling you, it's happening. I mentioned this in 2020. The burgeoning humanitarian revolution that is taking hold. And they're seeing it as too destructive to everything they know. Because in their minds, the only economy that works is parasitic. And this is something that goes back a long, 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 long time. This goes back 6,000 years, 7,000 years, 8,000 years. It is something that goes back millennium. The idea of the wealthy extracting value from those who they consider porous in order to build their lavish lives. It's a parasitic relationship, but it's very old. It's very ancient, especially in the European construct. And so the problem for these people is that humanitarianism says parasites not welcomed. You treat us with the respect that we deserve because we are humans just as you are humans. They don't see themselves as humans the way you do. They see themselves as better than you. They are more human than you are. And that's, that's the problem. That's the problem. Counter-revolution is, again, about stopping that progression forward to humanitarianism and egalitarianism. Think about it. Think about it. Think about it. Think about it. I've had conversations on this podcast that relate to the whole idea of being pro-life. And I've pointed out that a lot of the people who call themselves pro-life, they ain't pro-life, they're anti-abortion. They're anti-abortion. Because when you start dealing with being pro-life, you fight against anti-life forces, and a lot of these people ain't fighting against anti-life forces. You fight against things that allow life to be prosperous, not thrive. That's the cooing of the realm right now. And it's funny because most people don't know what, what that word means. We want communities that thrive. No, you don't. Because parasites thrive. Things that are unnaturally um, abundant in areas that are sickly thrive. You don't want things that thrive. You want prosperous things. You want imbalanced things. But I better <laughs> I better move on because if I keep on this, you know, this, this is going to be a two or three parter if I keep this on. But I wanted to start with the counter-revolution aspect because the Reagan revolution isn't, isn't a revolution. It's a counter-revolution. 
revolution. It is a response. It was a response to the 60s, to the 50s, to the 40s, and the 70s, got to count 70s, and the 70s. It was basically a response to what the New Deal had sought to overcome and what the New Deal had accomplished. That needs to be understood. Now, I've talked before, so I'm not really going to get into this, the whole idea of connecting neoconservatism and neoliberalism. A lot of people, well, maybe I will get into this a little bit right now. Um, a lot of people like to divorce neoconservatism and neoliberalism. I don't see it as something that you can divorce. Because without the, 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 the placement of neoconservatism on the cultural landscape in the United States, you would have never had the surgeons needed to transplant neoliberal ideas in this country. Understand, when you are talking about neoconservatism and neoliberalism, you are talking about functions, you are talking about ideologies and philosophies that were built to distort not only reality, but to distort history, and thus to distort the outcomes that their new structures or the new structures that they would be building would produce. Yet that distortion wasn't lost to those who were implementing the ideologies and philosophies and the constructs that belong to both of these that that belong to both of these um, uh, uh, terms. It, they understood what they were doing. The goal was to make sure that you didn't understand. So a lot of these people running around here talking about liberalism is bad. A lot of conservatives are like, yeah, liberalism is bad. What they're talking about is neoliberalism. But because they've been listening to neoconservatives, they combine liberalism and neoliberalism together. They think they're one and the same. I get that. I understand that. But they're not the same. With a lot of progressive liberals, they do not see the connection. I have yet to hear them speak about the connection between neoconservative policy, or should I say, make a clear distinction, not between, but connecting neoconservative ideologies and philosophies to the philosophies, ideologies, and structures of neoliberalism. The two of them are linked. You can't have one without the other. Just like, just like what, we, what was called before classical liberalism, classical liberalism, especially in the United States in the 1920s, the 1930s, the 1910s, the 1900s, you did not have classical liberalism without conservatism. Liberalism was, was typically thought of as the center line between conservatism, the assessors of the political economy, and not progressivism, but radicalism, the overturning of the political economy. In the modern era, because of that, the, the way that that um, uh, dynamic used to be laid out, 
people think when you hear neoliberalism and, neo and, and neoconservatism, you're talking about ideologies that one is more extreme than the other. Neoconservatism is more extreme than neoliberalism. But neoliberalism balances out neoconservatism. That's not the case. And I, I suggest... There is a book, and I can't think of the name of it. I listened to it. Um, it was a very technical book. It was taught... It, it spoke about what actually happened at Mount Pelier, I think is the name of it, um, where neoliberalism was reconstructed and, and neo-colonialism um, was reconstructed. And what I believe... Despite what they fooled themselves among saying, oh, well, we're naming it neoliberalism because it's, it's rooted in this idea that the markets need to be liberal. No, that wasn't why they did it. It was a means of distorting how people thought about what they were doing. Because liberalism was considered to be the intellectual um, political philosophy. You you were a liberal because you thought deeply about things. So before you put forward any type of, and this wasn't always the case, but this is how it was seen, before you put forward any type of legislation, especially if you dove into classical liberalism that went back, you know, four or five hundred years, it was thought that it was well thought out because you took a long historical view of not only what created the problem, but what the solution you were putting forward, what consequences would be produced by putting that solution forward. Well, if you take that idea of liberalism amongst the higher classes, and then you slap Neil on it, and you say, yeah, well, this is, this is right off of the heels of Keynesianism, and this is looking deeply at... Um, uh, uh, economics in a way that calculates the consequences of doing X, Y, and Z based on historical trends and what have you. People can get lost in the idea that neoliberalism is the same as classical liberalism. And if you look at how it was sold, particularly when you think about how neoconservatism sells neoliberalism, because all of the economic ideas that neoconservatism puts forward comes from neoliberalism. What you see is they have completely co-opted classical liberalism structures and grafted it onto neoliberal, uh, yeah, neoliberal economic ideas. When in fact, the thing that they are trying to produce makes a mockery of classical liberalism and tries to destroy it. That's one thing that Ronald Reagan was very clear about. You gotta applaud him for that. He hated liberalism. Hated it. He did not believe that young people should have a liberal education. And it it's that belief that it didn't start with him by the way. It actually, you know, went back to the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties you see that hatred of that free-thinking liberalism. I may not be, you know, 100% on board with liberalism, but a lot of the, the classical liberal enlightenment concepts, I'm on board with that stuff because it makes you think deeper. Well, you see 
the hatred of that enlightenment in this this fight against public education being opened up, which, by the way, is not new. These people have been doing this for quite some time. And, you know, big shout out to The Dollop. One of my favorite episodes, I've mentioned it before, it is on the Virginia textbook um, wars. Man, go and listen to that. Go and listen to that. It's it's phenomenal. It's amazing. It, it really touches on the mind. Um, so, Ronald Reagan, his counter-revolution picked up neoliberalism and neoconservatism, bound them together, and sold them as a different package. Neo, now, what neoliberalism and neocolonialism, I'm sorry, not colonialism, I'm about to talk about that, neoliberalism and neoconservatism um, sought, to, sought to reestablish is neocolonialism. They sought to reestablish the colonial order that had started crumbling at the end of World War II. This is something that black folks, Africans, former colonial subjects, all throughout the world understood in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. They understood it. That neoliberalism was just neocolonialism rebranded. And and to really understand this, you don't have to take my word for it. My suggestion to you is to do some research into the power dynamic structures of countries such as South Africa. Look at who owns all of the resources, where all of the profits go, who owns most of the, um, the agricultural land there. And what you'll see is the former colonial relationships that were supposedly ended when apartheid ended. Mind you now, that was nearly in the mid-1990s, a time period when I was a preteen. What you'll see is those colonial connections, those colonial structures, they haven't fallen. And South Africa isn't the only place where it hasn't fallen throughout Africa. In fact, in fact, recently, over the, over the last three or four months, France has had to literally, France has had to literally say, we're not going to get involved as much with our former African colonies. Something that started happening a few, what was it, three or four years ago with Britain. When they, when, when members of the royal family traveled in the Caribbean. Most of you do not understand the significance of that. What these places were essentially acknowledging, and I actually think part of it has to do with them, um, you know, a lot of people from the former colonies suddenly want to go to the places that colonized them. And the people who are there don't want those other folks in there. But what essentially they were acknowledging was that the old colonial structures, the old colonial relationships, they had never been abandoned. They were still intact. Sure, these people got their own 
um, flag. They could call themselves an independent country. But the reality was these places weren't independent. They were never going to be independent because the countries needed to suckle from them their resources and their manpower in order to make those other countries wealthy. See a pattern here? Neocolonialism was the goal, especially internationally, and the United States played a huge role in this. In fact, one of the primary reasons the United States has such a bloated defense budget and has maintained a bloated defense budget since the end of World War II isn't because it's protecting from terrorism. It's not because of, oh, well, global hotspots. No, the United States has such a bloated defense budget because it, the United States has been the primary force behind upholding neo-colonialism. In the Eurocentric paradigm that we live in, the United States has been the muscle that maintains Eurocentric policies throughout the world. Whenever societies don't want to bend to the will of Europe, which the United States is part of, White folks know this. White folks sure know it. Whenever these countries don't want to bend to the will of Europe, the United States jumps in if Europe can't handle it. This is one of the reasons why the U.S. is all over Africa right now, because it's trying to shore up all of these areas where there's tons of resources, I'm sorry, natural elements that it wants. What's so funny is, China is starting to use the same tactics as the United States to force African countries into doing what it wants them to do. Neocolonialism was the, was, was the vision behind neoliberalism and neoconservatism. Now, how that manifested here in the United States is a little bit harder to speak on. Because in the United States, it was less about overt colonization than it was about covert colonization. Now, you may not understand what that is, but so the, the easiest way for me to, to speak on it is the relationship between white people and black people and red people because it's just it's the most exaggerated portion of the relationship ethic here in the United States enslaved Africans were colonial subjects of white people here in this country after emancipation, they were still colonial subjects of white people here in this United States. The reason segregation was so easily reinstituted was because everybody, most everybody, saw black folks as colonial subjects to the white structures here in the United States. After World War II, uh, black folks who had gone over and fought for freedoms, 
for other white people in Europe came back here to find that they were still colonial subjects in a world that was rapidly decolonizing. And they said, oh, hell no, y'all ain't going to treat us like this. And so the fight for civil rights was based on the idea that black folks should no longer be colonial subjects. This is why I do not equate the struggle of white women with the struggle of black men, women, and children. Because white women, as much hell as they caught from their own men, they benefited from black folks having that colonial status. And oftentimes, white women enforced that colonial status. And I'm very conscious of that. Because I've seen instances in my life where white women acted as the hand of power for white supremacy. And they didn't stop to say, well, you know, we kind of have the same suffering. No, they, they, they used that white supremacist power with precision that men were not able to do. The fight for civil rights was a humanitarian fight for black folks because we knew we weren't going to be the only ones who benefited from it. But black and red people said, look, we, we can't be colonial subjects anymore. And we won't be. What white folks then did from the 70s onward was sought to undo all of that. When you look at what, hap what was happening in Ferguson, Missouri, with police officers arresting black folks, giving them tickets, and extracting money that would then go into the municipal budgets for white communities, that is a colonial system. That is a colonial system. The colony pays for the wealthy lifestyle of the colonizers. And the colony gets nothing back from it. And this is not just this this is not just happening, you know, it wasn't just happening in Ferguson. Believe it or not, almost ten years ago now, y'all. We got a year to go and it'll be ten years since Ferguson happened. But it was happening around the country. The last posthumously written, well, I'm sorry, not written, but released um, essay that Dr. King wrote prior to his death, obviously. Um, he started off with talking about how these black cities were becoming ringed by white suburbs. And this is something that you saw all throughout the country. This was back in 68 he saw this. But this was something that you saw all throughout the country. These suburbs used their power to, to economically exploit the black communities. They would pull out the, the, the brightest and smartest black people. They would put into prison the more radical, you know, black folks who they could not buy off. And then they would use their policing system and their court system to extract large sums of money out of the black community. And they would use that money 
not for the benefit of the black folks, but for the benefit of the white communities. That is a colonial relationship. At the same time, they forced native indigenous people further and further onto less arable land, gave them absolutely disgustingly low amounts of money to live off of, and essentially made them non-entities when it came to covering things that were happening in the quote-unquote nation. Which, quick point out about that, y'all. Quick point out, because this is actually very intriguing since we're talking about this whole colonial concept. The nation in this country is one of culture. Most nations are cultural. They're not based on borders. They're based on culture. The country is based on borders. But the nation is based on culture. This is why the only time when you see black folks covered in, quote, national news is when it's either beneficial to white people, it's disrupting white people's lives, or it's a combination of the two. We have our role to play in this society, in this nation, and if we step outside of that role, and particularly try to do something that's going to be better for our people. But yet it may cost the society something that society don't want to give up. That's when it becomes a threat to quote national security. Because the national security is white dominant. There is a um. I just saw this on Twitter. There was a, in a, in a, a, a DOD hearing, Department of Defense hearing, some time ago, and I remember actually watching this. One of the five stars said that he wanted, you know, he, he and his people had read Mark. They may not agree with it, but they read it so they would know about it. And so he was interested in studying white supremacy because they had to know about it, they should know about it, yada, yada, yada. I don't give him credit for that. Because this has been a problem in the military, you know, they literally had to push people out who were too racist back in the 80s. 80s, everybody. In my lifetime, they were pushing people out of the military in the 80s and 90s who were still too racist. Anyway. Somebody included with that video a tweet calling this man a turncoat and a betrayer of America because he said that. That, to me, captured what nation is. You want to study white supremacy so you can help defeat it? I don't care if you're in the military. You are a threat to the national pride, which these people know exactly what that means. That ain't me saying it. That is what. That is how it has been interpreted. 
This man is a threat to the national security as many white people see it because white supremacy is part of the national character. It's part of the national culture. You interrupted, you are interrupting the, natu the, the natural national spirit. Think on that. So the last thing I want to talk about um, in this in this title is the word Tina, T-I-N-A. Margaret Thatcher, for those of you young enough, um, I don't know if she coined it. You know, if it was coined for her. But after the Soviet Union fell, she she said, you know, there is no alternative to capitalism, basically. There is no alternative to capitalism. Tina, there is no alternative to capitalism. That was when capitalism took off his mask and started showing everybody what it was truthfully about. And all these people who had been supporting the whole idea of neoliberalism, neoconservatism, capitalism on the rise, man, they were dumbfounded with how quick capitalism moved to reclaim territory that it had to give up during the New Deal. And when it reclaimed territory, it threw tens of millions of people within a five-year period into terrifying poverty. Granted, it had already started doing that throughout the 80s. But it went on steroids in the mid to late 90s. Now, obviously, Bill Clinton gets a lot of disdain for that, and he should. But at the same time, I remind people, the Republicans took back the House for the first time in 40 years in 1995. They deserve some of the blame. In fact, they deserve quite a bit of the blame. If you don't know, I, I produced an episode, and it didn't, it just barely caught on now. I produced an episode on GoPack, which you should really listen to. Because at the beginning of that episode, I include Newt Gingrich's, um, the, the open remarks to Newt Gingrich's speech in 1995 when the Republicans captured the House. And I also include a significant portion of one of his GoPack audio tapes. And it's fascinating to say the least. So, you know, check it out if you haven't already. The reason I do want to focus quickly on Tina, though, there is no alternative, is because that has been kind of the background call to a lot of neoconservatives. We all know that capitalism works, it's the best system around, blah, 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 blah. When the fact of the matter is, no. What we know is that capitalism has great staying power. It is the choice of the elite. 
We don't know that it works. In fact, we know the exact opposite. And we know, ultimately, where it's aiming for. The idea that there is no alternative flies in the face of reality. There obviously clearly is alternatives, but capitalism works day and night to not only devalue them, but debase them and to make them look foolish. And they do a darn good job of doing that. But as we move into a period of time when either this system is going to end or the system called Earth is going to end us, Tina has to be dismantled because there is alternatives. There is alternatives. And what's funny about it is there is natural alternatives. Yeah, she said there is no alternatives, Tina. Well, no, the reality is there is natural alternatives. Humanity, and it's so funny because I know, because I, I have a couple of those books, that there are people who have studied human nature when it comes to ecology and economy. But most economists don't have any clue about these natural tendencies. In fact, in fact, no, I'm lying about that. That's a lie. They do have an idea about these natural tendencies, but they try to manipulate those natural tendencies for exploitative purposes. And I'm not just talking out of my behind here. There is a whole section of science which is part of the behavioral science category that marketers and advertisements and all of them use to try to get you to naturally want to consume more and more and more than you need to consume or naturally be connected to some product or some brand or some company even when you don't want to be connected to them. They use the natural tendencies of humanity against humanity to enslave them. Imagine if instead of using those tendencies for psychopathic ends, we use those tendencies towards humanitarian ends. See, we are in a period of time where two things need to happen, y'all. One, the New Deal needs to be reconstructed. It needs to be reconstructed and it needs to be reestablished. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish that AOC and the squad and progressives will get it through their minds, we need to rebuild the New Deal. That's the first thing that needs to happen. The second thing that needs to happen is we need to go beyond the New Deal. Capitalism nakedly run 
is a force that is too destructive. It will have to be heavily regulated or it will have to be done away with. Humanity is going to have to re-establish new, or no, how do I want to say this? Humanity is going to have to re-establish new Yeah, I don't know how I want to say this here. Because it's 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 a powerful sentiment that I've that I've thought about before. Um so humanity is going to have to reestablish our commitment to enlightenment. That's one. But it's also going to have to reestablish its commitment to humanitarian settings. And so we do not talk about we we tend to talk about economy through philosophical lenses. But I really think ultimately what everything's going to come down to is we aren't going to seek a a capitalist society or a, a capitalist economy. We're not going to seek a socialist economy. We're not going to seek a democracy-based economy. We are going to seek a humanitarian economy. We don't even have that conversation. Think about that. I just said we're going to have a humanitarian economy and your mind went blank. Well, what is that? I mean, we can get a humanitarian if we just do socialism. Maybe we can, I mean, we can kind of get humanitarian if we, I don't know, communism? Maybe democracy could bring us a humanitarian. But see, why are we putting it behind all of these walls? Why are we putting it into all these philosophies? We have the technology and the wisdom needed now to craft an economic philosophy around humanitarianism and egalitarianism. The thing that we are not willing to do is to use the wisdom and the knowledge that we have to construct those things. We don't want to construct a humanitarian um, economy because it would make us think, rethink everything. It would force in, in, in academia where so much is centered and focused around your lane, your lane, your lane, it would force probably two or three dozen, well, okay, maybe that's a little bit too much. It'll force, let's say, a dozen and a half different schools of thought to get together in a room and to really start looking holistically at what humanitarianism is when you stretch it out over all of these different concepts. Not only what is humanitarian, what or not only what humanitarian is, but what is egalitarianism? That is a question that nobody seems to be able to answer. Egalitarianism is one of the most ill-defined words I have ever seen. It's a philosophy without a philosophy. It's a concept without conceptualization. 
this is where we're headed. Democracy can be a part of the humanitarian political economy. Socialism can be part of it. Communism probably can be part of it. In fact, yeah, all three of them would most likely be part of it. Anarchism, to an extent, would be part of it. And yeah, capitalism wouldn't be part of it because of the exploitation nature of it. But what would it be? I mean, that's a, that's a huge, for this generation, question. What would a humanitarian political economy be? Based on natural human tendencies, not the tendencies of the small, psychopathic, narcissistic group that we have been basing so much of our interactions on. Even in a natural state, psychopaths and narcissists are under 20% of the population. In an even more natural state, and what I mean by natural state is a society that promotes narcissism and um, uh, psychopathy, like the United States. When I say an even more natural state, now I'm thinking about something like Taiwan. I was reading a book some years back, over 10 years ago now, where they were talk, where the author, this woman, was talking about um, the, she was comparing the appearance of narcissistic and psychopathic traits in several countries. And the United States is like, I think it was 20%. Taiwan was like 4%. It was actually, I think, a little bit under 4%. Because in Asian societies, to be narcissistic, to be selfish, to be psychopathic, that is looked upon as very, very negative. You don't do that. Even the criminals in those areas, in those countries, have a level of um, honor that they won't cross because of the communal backlash of doing those things. So, um, I'm going to end it right there. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, I know this one was a bit of a heavy one. You can always reach out to me. I love hearing from you guys. I am your brother, Vimeo Diesel Gaia. If you have the extra money, do me the honors, do me the favor of, um, you know, throw me some dollars. CWB Podcast. You can find me on Cash App, you could find me on PayPal. Two dollars, five dollars, ten dollars, twenty dollars, fifty dollars if you got it. You know, throw it to me if you can. And um, try to make it monthly. I've talked to you guys before about the goals that I have set. Um, and I can't wait. There's going to be an announcement coming up that I can't wait to 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 make for you guys. But um, again, questions, comments, concerns. Reach out to me. I'm your brother, Ryan Meredith. Until the next one, peace. There's a shadow on the faces of the men who sent the guns To the wars that are fought in places where their business interests run On the radio talk shows and the TV You hear one thing again and again How the USA stands for freedom And we come to the aid of a friend 
But who are the ones that we call our friends? These governments are killing their own Or the people who find they can't take anymore And they pick up a gun or a brick or a stone 